Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop up out of nowhere like a mud horn? The helpful folks at State Farm do. Like a fender bender. When you're already late. Or a thief. Or a pack of Jawas. Breaking into your home and making off with your new flat screen television. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Just like your neighborhood Ugnot. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are ready to help. I have spoken. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice. In the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. Ah! The Assistant is really helpful when I'm driving. I can just say, Hey Google! Take me to the nearest coffee shop! The directions are pulled up on my phone and I have much needed caffeine pulsing through my veins minutes later. A little help, hands free. Just say, hey Google, to get started. My ship has been destroyed. I'm trapped here. Stripped, not destroyed. The Jawas steal. They don't destroy. Stolen or destroyed makes no difference to me. Major mode contains adult content and spoilers. There's no way to recover the parts. You can trade. With adult content? Are you out of your mind? I will take you to them. I have spoken. And now binge mode. Is it still sleeping? Yes. Was it injured? I don't think so. Not physically. Explain it to me again. I still don't understand what happened. Neither do I. Binge World Star Wars, proudly a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin, Editor-in-Chief of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. Joining me today, now that he's finished feasting on some mudhorn yolk. Oh, it's rich in protein and vitamins and minerals. Wash your hands first. That's my note to the Jawas. And hygiene is an issue. <laughs> sand crawler. Clearly. It's Ringer Senior Creative. Your Jedi Master, Jason Concepcion. Mal. <laughs> I'm always nourished by binge mode Star Wars. <laughs> where we're exploring the wider Star Wars universe, from the Skywalker saga films to the anthology films to the Mandalorian, plus numerous other facets of a galaxy far, far away, all leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker on December 20th. Please make the journey to Mandalore with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or Wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. Five-star ratings, or we will blast you from our crawler. Give us those five stars. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans, which is an excellent place to workshop your baby Yoda memes. Also, hit the ringer.com slash shop for that 
hot, hot merch. Excellent for naps. Your little floating basket. Precious. Curled up in robes and binge mode tea. Beautiful. Last time on Binge Mode, we explored John Williams' iconic score and the signature sounds of Star Wars. And today, we're diving deep, deep into The Mandalorian Chapter 2, The Child. As always, spoiler warning, while we know nothing about the future of The Mandalorian, we will be going deep on details from this episode of The Mandalorian and the entire Star Wars saga to date, taking official canon and legends hashtag not canon into account. So allow us to give you a portion of the reward because it's time to head to our Vala 7. Oh, I thought you were dead. But since you're not, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happens in the second episode of The Mandalorian by heading to a podcast studio far, far away and queuing up the opening crawl. As The Mandalorian makes his way back toward his ship, baby Yoda in a floating cradle following preciously right behind. Side note, we will be referring to this creature as baby Yoda throughout yes. the podcast. Baby Yoda or the child. Or the child. We have no idea of the gender of this That's child right. or if it is actually related to Yoda. We don't know. But we got to call it something because it's so cute. Precious. <laughs> Mando and Baby Yoda are ambushed by three Trandoshans. More on them later. Perhaps the ones we saw in the cantina when Mando met Grief Karga. The Trandoshans attack with battle axes. Yeah. A brutal fight ensues. Mando manages to beat the ambushers. And then sees that one of the Trandoshans was carrying a tracking file. Uh-oh. Mando makes camp to repair his armor. Baby Yoda, seeing Mando attempt to treat a wounded arm, pops out of its little cradle. It seems about to use the force to heal Mando when the bounty hunter sees it and puts it back in its little egg. Yodi tries a second time, and again, <laughs> Mando places it back in its cradle, this time sealing it shut. I think of all of the unbelievably precious sequences in this episode. Baby Yoda waddling over and reaching to heal the wound is the most darling thing that I have maybe ever seen. It makes me, and this is, I think, a problem, and we're going to get into this about, is Baby Yoda too cute? It makes me hate <laughs> Mando more and more. Will you just pick up the baby, please? <laughs> just cradle it to him... your breast. Yes, what are you doing? <laughs> well, Mando has a lot of emotional He's got a lot of baggage. Baggage. When Mando arrives at a ship, he finds Jawas in the process of stripping it. He takes aim and turns three of them to piles of ash. There's gonna, nothing left. We're going to talk about how later. <laughs> Very tough look for our guy, Mando. The rest flee in terror in their sand crawler. Mando gives chase, baby Yoda floating behind. Mando makes his move, climbing up the side of the sand crawler as the Jawas do their best to defend it. And it turns out that their best is good enough because Mando makes it to the top, but the waiting Jawas hit him with several forceful blasts from their ion weapons. And our dude falls in an unconscious sparking heap Very tough. to the mud and rocks below. Best in the parsec, best they in said. The, uh, listen, it's a low bar, apparently. Lame parsec. He wakes an unknown amount of time later to see Baby Yoda staring at him with those big dewy eyes. Man who checks his ship. Oh, it's nearly a shell. Yeah. Nearly brutal. almost everything of value, his weapons included, have been taken. With nowhere else to turn, Mando begins a long walk back to the Ugnot Quill's homestead. Quill says, Hey, Mando, I thought you were dead. 
alarming. But as we heard in chapter one, no one's made it out alive. He's surprised that this small green child is the source of all the trouble in the valley. Quill offers to take Mando to the Jawas and help broker a deal for the return of the Razorcrest parts. He has spoken. That'll be the end of it. Yeah. Meanwhile, baby Yoda showing the same enthusiasm that I do when I peel open a fresh bag of flaming hot bunions, slurps down a whole frog. Yeah. Incredible tackle move beforehand to pin the frog to the ground. (laughs) Strong base. There was some waddling in pursuit before. Right, uses the hips to pin it down, double hand technique, and then just eats the whole thing. Also, it makes the opening sequence of this episode when they're going through that little gully and the lizards are kind of following uh, Mando in the cradle and Yoda is looking at them with interest. Now you know, understand why. He's just like, I'm hungry. But you're right. That motor, that pursuit, it's like watching Aaron Donald close on a sack. I tell you, I like what I'm seeing from this kid. (laughs) (laughs) Here's my other take. It must use the force to eat to squeeze all that frog meat to a tight sphere. It's forced digestion. Yeah, because where else does its guts go? Guts and organs, like, there's no space it a, for it all. It, it was a to, big frog. It has to squeeze it down so that it's like this dense sphere of meat and bone. We had a lot of sidebarring on Slack about the portion size. Yeah, and he, I said to you and Isaac and Cram that I, I didn't think it was that dissimilar from the amount of, say, Popeyes I consume on a given on. evening, you know, <laughs> relative to my body weight. But you you disagree. If you ate a bag of Popeyes that was <laughs> roughly your height. It's <laughs> more that like would a be, third. It would, no? no, it was like it. You're it, thinking of those fully extended frog legs. That, that's true. So, but I think like when you take into the circumference of the frog into account, <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of material. How much of it is just like moisture though? Water weight? <laughs> Who? Here's the other issue. <laughs> Who has the worst shits in the Star Wars universe? Oh boy. Well, I mean, that's the other thing though. You know, we <laughs> see now that Baby Yoda can get out of the basket, can reach, can yeah. use the force. Does Baby Yoda wear diapers? Does Baby Yoda need help going to the bathroom? How self-sufficient is the child? It's Very, it seems. Also, check that. It's clearly the huts that have the worst farts and shits in the galaxy. Oh, my God. At the Sandcrawler, Mando initially refuses to disarm, noting that his weapons are part of his religion. Mm -hmm. He sets them aside, though, and the trading begins. The Jawas come in real high. Oh, my God. Asking for Mando's best car. In return for his parts. Do you watch, you know, Million Dollar Listing LA, yes, Million I Dollar do. Listing New York? When something like this happens in the real estate market, you don't even get a counter. Because That's it. So, it, it's such it's an ridiculous. insulting opening it's ridiculous. Offer. We're not on the same page. Yes. We're not even in the same book. It's insane. <laughs> they then come down slightly <laughs> do by they? asking for Baby Yoda. <laughs> Possibly the most valuable thing in the galaxy. An absolute non-starter. <laughs> so finally they settle on a service. They ask Mando to retrieve the egg of a mudhorn. Said mudhorn. Absolutely hands Mando his ass. Fucking ragdolls him five <laughs> times. And good for you, mudhorn, because you were just trying to have a nap and protect your egg. And you were treated cruelly and unfairly. And I am horrified. Protect the mudhorn. 
The Mudhorn <laughs> wrecks the non-Beskar parts of Mando's armor that are crackling with electricity. His chest plate, his breastplate is hanging off of him. Nearly kills him. Our dude is a second away from death here. But as the Mudhorn makes its death charge, oh. is that baby Yoda's music? <laughs> <laughs> baby Yoda. Clawed hand extended and quivering. He uses the force to stop the mudhorn in its tracks, allowing Mando to stab the mudhorn, tragically killing the beast. Baby Yoda passes out from exertion, but we have not seen this much pure talent since Harry first climbed aboard a broom. Strong with the force, I gotta say. Waiting to see Megalian peep around the corner. In the valley. Luke had trouble pulling an X-Wing out of the swamp. And he was full grown at that time. (laughs) Mando returns to the sand crawler with the egg and the Jawas are delighted. The rich yolk has seemingly an intoxicating effect on them. This is what I'm like when I first get my hands on uh, Cadbury (laughs) cream eggs. Every Easter season. God. Delicious. They return Mando's ship parts. On the road back to the ship, Mandul and Quill puzzle over Baby Yoda's condition. Neither seem, stumped. neither seem to understand that Baby Yodes used the Force. We're going to talk about that at length. Quite an interesting development. Mando and Quill repair the ship in record time. Mando's like, it will take days. And then it Quill's feels like, like you can help me. Yeah, why don't you shut up? <laughs> Instead you of complaining. You <laughs> bee and help me do this. And then they had it done by dawn. Sunrise. Amazing. Baby Yoda continues with the power nap, recharging. By the next morning, the ship is space ready. Miraculous. Mando offers Quill a portion of the reward. The Ugnaught refuses. And then Mando offers him something else, something surprising. A spot on his crew. But Quill came to Arvala 7 because he was weary of taking orders. He wants to be free. And he again declines. Mando thanks him and they part. Mando takes off and baby Yodes finally awakens. Precious. You know what I found myself thinking about when all of this was happening? How scary it must be to fly a spaceship and have to repair it, and then you just have to fly it. There's no, like, testing. I know. All he did was, like, power up the engines lightly, and then he's like, seems good. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little alarming. Jason, they really don't like you for some reason. Well, I did disintegrate a few of them. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings and use the force. The defining theme of this episode is the unfamiliar. We'll start before we get into the plot with the fact that the Mandalorian is still an unfamiliar viewing experience for us, the people consuming it. And it's still too early to completely know what we should expect from this live-action Star Wars Disney Plus television experience. Chapter 2 answered some of our questions, but it posed some new ones entirely. One of them was pace. Yes, yes, yes. This episode really felt like they had a pilot's worth of material and split that into two episodes. I think that we're going to find that, you know, this is an eight-episode season. I think we're going to find that, like, there's probably six episodes of pure cocaine that they then had to cut with uh, (laughs) two episodes of baby powder to make it stretch. Um, But clearly this was what felt like, to use video game terminology, like a side quest, Mm -hmm. you know, where 
the forward momentum stalls a bit and we go on this kind of hurly-burly mission to regain something that probably shouldn't have been lost. It was like a time filler episode right. in a certain sense. Although we did get, as you noted, some new information. We learned that Baby Yodes is extremely strong in the force. Yeah. The fact that this episode was actually written by John Favreau, yeah. directed by Rick Famuyiwa, is notable, I think, because yeah. Favs is, of course, the creator, the showrunner, and that means that this is what he wanted this episode to be. Right. And so to that question of like the, the note that it feels like a side quest, it's if we remove the previously on that opens the episode and then the prolonged and beautiful, you know, illustrated end credits, it's actually only 27 minutes yeah. of new story. And there's no dialogue for almost the first third of that, which is pretty astounding. So does the fact that Favs wrote it indicate that it just had to be treated a certain way to get us to the next step where the story will really open from here? Or could it perhaps speak to the fact that this is the style of the show, that it is going to actually be very compact, mm -hmm. very efficient, that we're going to advance slightly each episode, but that it's going to have almost a sense of adventure of the week. Yeah, It's still too soon to say one of the things that we do have more clarity about is the style. The episode is very heavy on, you know, if you open up Instagram, vignettes when you're putting the the black shadows around the corner of your frame. Very heavy on that sort of treatment and style, which maybe isn't to everyone's personal taste, but in terms of our theme today, really enhances that sense of the unknown. There's always something lurking. There's always something looming in the shadow just out of frame, both for us as viewers and for the characters in the story. But the things that we can see reinforce something that we talked about last week, the heavy Western vibes yeah. and the samurai essence. Yeah, the Western vibes are, are throughout in this. There's the vistas, which a real visual theme of a Western is placing the characters small against this vast backdrop that really place them in, in their environment. And we see that a lot in this episode. There's a lot of culture clash like in Westerns. Like I think about the searchers yes. and like mm -hmm. John Wayne having to interact with and fight against Native Americans. And there's a lot of like that kind of misunderstanding the native dwellers of this planet thing with the with Mando and the way he just is like, well, I'm going to just flat out murder three Jawas. Right. Well, exploration and discovery for you, the protagonist, yeah. is by definition an incursion right, for somebody else. And then Certainly the samurai themes as well. Keith Phipps and Vulture and others have noted the lone wolf and cub yes. kind of parallels, which is a iconic legendary manga that is one of the most influential manga stories of the last 50 years. A lot of baby in a cradle action in yes. that. <laughs> Alan Sepinwall in Rolling Stone made the Tartakovsky Clone Wars comparison. Right. Um, with the, you know, extensive violence the and action. the action. Susanna Polo in Polygon compared it to another Tartakovsky show, Samurai Jack, yep. with the um, kind of like lone wolf, taciturn hero that is just kind of like an implacable force of nature. Mm -hmm. Although clearly we have questions about Mando's <laughs> competence in comparison to Samurai Jack as, as we go through this episode. That, I think though, that, is where it plays in maybe better to the Clone Wars comp because right. Anakin, who is the focus of much of that, but not all of it, you know, we get a lot of time with Obi-Wan, a lot of time with Mace Windu, mm -hmm. time with Ventress, time with Dooku, Grievous, etc. It's often just as much about the 
backdrop yeah. as it is about whatever's playing out on the foreground. You know, the way that that action and that ferocity, somebody who is discovering some sort of potential or talent still plays out against this new environment, a new frontier that you're getting exposed to often as they are for the first time, which that, is very cool. One lone wolf and cub parallel that's, that seems very evident to me is how much of the violence plays out on baby Yoda's face. Mm-hmm. Whenever Mando is engaging in a violent act, whether it's fighting the Trandoshans or shooting at the Jawas, we get a shot of baby Yoda's yeah. face. It's clearly affected by what it's seen. And that gets us to the focus of this episode, which I think it's fair to say broadly, at least, had maybe less of a unanimous approval rating sure. than the premiere uh, from a pacing and plot perspective was at least somewhat surprising as we've as we've started to talk about already, at least on first viewing. But both right away and certainly as you return to it and repeat viewing, really to us was quite enjoyable in part, large part because of that aspect of discovery, getting to know Baby Yoda, getting to understand more about the characters, but because it really read like a Star Wars love letter. You know, there are so many of the things that you think about and associate with Star Wars. For many people, the first thing they would say would be the Skywalker saga, right? Skywalkers. But while there are not necessarily overt, here is a Skywalker, here is a Kenobi, here is a lightsaber, here is a Jedi, so much of the essence and the core DNA of why we love the stories was present here. Exploration, discovery, an awakening, you know, learning something about either yourself or something else that you are exposed to when you have that sense of what is possible for the first time. So seeing baby Yoda use the force, even if as viewers who recognize something that looked like Yoda at the end of the first episode and we said, of course, there's got to be force sensitivity at play here. What else would this all be about? It's an absolutely thrilling moment getting introduced to new creatures like the Mudhorn, for example, seeing how Mando makes use of all of the different weapons and tools in his arsenal, getting to know Quill and learning more about the Ugnaughts and how the trauma in his past has shaped the decisions in his life, seeing how the Razor Crest, how much that means to Mando and how something jeopardizing it and happening to it can totally alter the path, not only of his day, but potentially, you realize, in that moment of his life. All these little things that are present in Star Wars stories we love are here. And getting canonical confirmation that Jawas are present in the Outer Rim mm-hmm. outside of Tatooine right. is a it's a pretty big deal. Regarding Baby Yoda. Let's I'm Before we go kind of beat this. by beat here. This is something you've been saying. Yeah. It's on your mind. It is. I want to let you share this sure. stance with the listeners. Sure. Explain it and then let's discuss it for a moment. Is Baby Yoda too cute? <laughs> I now I want to let me just say up front I wouldn't change a thing about Baby Yoda. Perfect, an absolute design masterpiece. Like the way Werner Herzog at the premiere red carpet told Variety that it was heartbreaking and hauntingly beautiful. It, <laughs> a master and it, of and cinema. it is <laughs> truly. But let me say this: it's distracting how cute it is. <laughs> I just want to see it all the time. Yeah. If the entire episode was like forty-five minutes seen through the eyes of baby Yoda as it like stumbles and bobbles and coos and like reaches out from its little egg and goes different places. And that's all I want. I was really trying to interrogate my own emotions about it. And I was thinking, God, you know, like I was only concerned about Mando's life Mm -hmm. as he was being crushed by the horn of the mud horn. Right. Because 
Without him, Baby Yoda would be alone. Right, there's no protector. Otherwise, like Mando could get his head cut off. Yeah. I only care about Baby Yoda at this point. And I think that that is probably not what you want from a series <laughs> titled The Mandalorian. What you're describing is, I think, probably a common response where you are so invested instantly and so worried for Baby Yoda. You know, anytime Mando moves just away, a few yeah. steps too far away, and you're like, get back to Dude, it. Dude, your <laughs> ship was just shredded because you didn't think to put a monitor or an yeah, alarm in place? Like, can you be trusted to protect this absolutely you're precious running, thing? You're running after a sand crawler and crawling up the side of it and the baby Yoda Bluetooth is still paired right. with your armor and the egg is like going shooting 30 miles an hour after you. <laughs> it's concerning. Mando needs some help. But in terms of whether baby Yoda is too cute, my official stance is just that that is impossible because baby Yoda is an absolute... Marvel come to life. A majestic, astonishing breath of wonder that we are fortunate enough to gaze upon. It's beautiful. And I'll say this. Protect Baby Yoda. Protect Baby Yoda at all costs. Because if Favreau and Filoni for any reason are like, I guess Baby Yoda has to be injured. Not in Force Awakens. I will perish the fucking thought. I will cancel Disney Plus and I will do it. I will do it. <laughs> Although I, my theory is that like this is the, you know, they'll, they'll bring him back for the next trilogy, the trilogy after this trilogy. So that Baby Yoda might just be like kicking it somewhere else in the galaxy during the. Yeah, fast forward a hundred years. Last Jedi, and et cetera. Like hundred years later and here's Baby Yoda's now grown up. So again, we hinted at this earlier, but very deliberately in this episode, there was no pronoun assigned to Baby Yoda. Mando and Quill refer to it as it or the child. We will be saying the child, Baby Yoda. We can say they because we do not know Baby Yoda's gender, but we do not know, which we're going to get back to as we discuss, again, the Yoda, Yaddle, offspring, clone, member of the species possibilities. But it's that mystery is being drawn out deliberately who baby Yoda is. So let's let's talk about the events of the episode a little more. Mando, the child, Quill, this unlikely trifecta of teammates brought together by the unfamiliar. So one of the first questions that we have right away as the episode opens these gorgeous, you know, lingering shots, is Mando familiar with this planet? Is he familiar with this type of terrain? We have heard that he is the best in the Parsec, big yeah. boast, in chapter one. Now you have to start wondering, was that just about driving up the price with the client? Because he's okay in a fight when things are happening. Is he? But it's, he's pretty, I mean, like, listen. He got his ass kicked three times. I mean, he he ultimately wins the first fight. He wins a three to one battle. But he he incurred real damage there. It wasn't easy for him, despite his, I like those odds with the four to one stormtrooper shit talk in the first episode. He manages to take out the, uh, with help Mm -hmm. of IG, Yes. Take out the guards who are controlling the asset that turns out that to was be impressive. Beta. That was impressive. What we see in this episode definitely feels like a slight correction of what our initial understanding of his. I skill just think and it's one of those is. things where he's good on the field, but not a high IQ. Interesting. Like the Victor Crumb. Yes. You know, not the most loquacious type. Just, as like Hermione an instinctive, would say. an instinctive performer, yeah. but not one knows when it's time for the Vronsky faint. Yeah, it's but it's like, how about if you're going to park? Might come up with the bloody nose. If you're going to park on a planet that is inhabited by Jawas and your ship is literally shiny silver, you can see it from 25 miles away. Yes. Maybe put the club on the thing and lock the door. (laughs) 
club. Right. So presumably being the best in the parsec would mean in addition to just skill in battle and the yeah. ability to actually effectively hunt down its bounty, it would mean boasting some awareness of what is in the parsec, yeah. where he's going and what he'll face once he's there. But he didn't know last episode how to ride a blurg, and he didn't know this episode that a ship would come under Jawa attack, as you just said, or how to then deal with it afterwards without help from Quill. Didn't know how to battle a Mudhorn, etc. And he, again, to be clear, I don't want to be too hard. She shows a ton of heart. Ton he's of got heart. A lot, a lot of heart, a lot of grit. A lot of grit. I love that. You love that from a Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> But he was a little bit outclassed in some of his battles in these three set pieces. And it seems like he's unaccustomed to what awaited him or how to handle it. And just as crucially, he's initially uncomfortable accepting help from unlikely sources, at least initially. Now, to be fair, we saw last week that Mando is willing to work with others when he needs to. Yes. Made the Blurg-centric agreement with Quill for guidance, for instance. And you'd think just seeing... Quill being able to ride a Blurg would shame you into actually being like, okay, I can definitely ride it. Quill can ride it. And when he saw IG pursuing the same bounty as him, he partnered with the droid who could just have easily been his enemy. As a Mandalorian bounty hunter, he's accustomed to scraping out a life in the Outer Rim, to operating in isolation, acting as a rogue. In chapter one, he proved capable of improvising, yes. adjusting on the fly if doing so would help his overall mission. But that's not wholly the same as truly embracing help or companionship. And I think those are clearly things that the Mando generally doesn't want unless it can be absolutely on his terms, such as right. when he offered Quill the job. Right. As he wanders through Arvala 7, we have the planet name now. We'll talk about that a bit more later. Baby Yoda floating just adorably so adorable. in the basket by Mando's side. Sun we worried about sunburn. We worried about UV. Do you want to close the top? Sometimes? I guess it's it's dep it depends on how long Baby Yoda has been inside. Is exposure to the sun normal? Is it rare? Yeah. Great question. I don't think Mando's thinking about that at all. Covered head to toe in armor. <laughs> <gasps> the planet's tiny little lizard fellas that you mentioned earlier are observing Mando and Baby Yoda with great interest. Yeah, Baby Yoda looking at them with interest. Yeah. Well, no one appears to have seen what they're seeing before, yes. which is which is notable. You know, the lizards have not seen clearly something like Mando and Baby Yoda prior to this, and the child perched at the front of the basket, looking out. You know, when you're a kid and you're plopped into the shopping cart yeah. at the store and you're just on the edge because you want to be able to reach for everything. That's the vibe that Baby Yoda has in this entire sequence, gazing out with such sincere intrigue, such wonder. And we don't know how long Baby Yoda spent in the Nikdo encampment or what Baby Yoda's life was like before that period in time, what Baby Yoda has been exposed to. But we can sense here a real thirst for exploration, a desire to observe and assess the previously unfamiliar. It's I just wonderful. love looking at its little face. The sweet little eyes. eyes. Little, the, the His little brown. Ears. Little brown. Mando, despite the ass kickings that await in this episode, at least has a somewhat effective sense of danger, a yes. spidey sense, so to speak, because... Right before three of his bounty hunting peers, Trandoshans, pounce, he can feel that something's off. Now, a small note about this scene for me. I have a high tolerance for tropes, mm -hmm. in, especially in genre. Yeah. It's like, listen, I get it. You need reasons for characters to meet sometimes. And you need obstacles that are placed in a character's way to build a sense of tension. But also the character needs to get past those obstacles in order to keep the story going. Right. That said, I think especially in a short episode like this, 27 minutes of pure show, yeah. 
that moment with the Chandoshans, I stumbled on it a little bit because it's like, why are we attacking with battle axes? This is space in a high tech environment. Like shoot him, Mm -hmm. shoot him with something from your hidden position behind the rocks. Just shoot him and then walk away. Like, I get it. We need to have this challenge happen so that Mando can best it and we can see how good he is, but also how this is slowly taking a toll on him and we can see the effect that the violence has on Baby Yoda. But also, like, it wouldn't make any sense. Like, they would just carry blasters and they'd just shoot him from 40 feet away. Maybe they wondered if there was any sort of, like, bodyguard, dead man switch situation going on. Vicky! Vicky! I guess dead man! Switch. I guess, you know, like Boss carried like a grenade launcher type thing. So maybe I guess like you could argue that if Trandoshans are generally armed in that way, their weaponry would just blow everything up. Mm-hmm. So they were like, OK, well, we need to make sure that we right, get that confirmation. We yeah. Though, yeah. would they? Because IG-11 had orders to kill it. These are good questions. Is it, it, yeah. That's all. That's These my small questions. note for that one scene. It's a professional necessity that he be aware of his surroundings like this. But also... Another insight into his extremely well-honed, almost paranoiac yeah. instincts. There's always a tripwire there. There's al- He's always ready to draw down, and he doesn't enter into any space without thinking, okay, where is the thing that can kill me in here? Right. Is this professional training? Is this cultural training as a Mandalorian? Is this instincts he's developed since childhood and his upbringing as a foundling? When did he learn to be this way. That's all stuff that I hope we learn more about. I I agree. When Mando then, without any remorse, disintegrates one of the Trandoshans who's moving toward Baby Yoda, he and the camera linger on this tracking fob, just as with IG-11. This is intriguing. Chapter one, it's very clear to us, even though we have no specific details yet, that other bounty hunters are on the assets trail. So who sent them? The client? Sending out multiple people, right. perhaps with different double instructions. And triple, double and triple dipping. But then we get into the fact that IG-11 had different orders than Mando. Is it a competing faction? Other parties after Baby Yoda did these bounty hunters in this particular instance, like IG-11, have orders to terminate? Or did they have orders like Mando to bring the asset back alive? How many more yeah. are going to come after Baby Yoda now that they've left this planet. What orders will they have? You know, Mando has already breached the bounty hunter code by shooting IG-11 in the head and killing these Trandoshans, and now he's not going to be able to stop looking over his shoulder. There's always going to be this looming stress. And again, we have the sense that maybe that's just part of his life already, part yeah. of his everyday existence, but Baby Yoda's presence in his life compounds and exacerbates that sense that there's something that you don't quite know or understand just there waiting to get you. And it's not just that you don't know what it is. It's that you don't yet know why it's after you. I mean, we see how little Mando understands what's playing out. The Mando, as we noted, does not escape from this fight unscathed. His armor is in need of repair, and he's got a pretty serious wound to his arm. And the little baby wants to help. Little baby is concerned about it, too. This is... So sweet. This oh, is so oh, baby sweet. Is worried about him. This is so precious. <laughs> <laughs> so Mando's at camp, and he has he's been working on his armor, and then he turns to that wound on the side, on the side of his arm, and he's you know attempting to cauterize it or something with mm-hmm. with an implement. Baby Yoda is watching this. We get this heartbreaking shot of 
tight close-up of Baby Yoda's face and the sparks from Mando's uh, healing tool reflecting in its dewy eyes. And then we get Baby Yoda deciding, I'm going to pop out of this little cradle. I'm going to wander over. I'm going to help. Big reveal here. Big reveal that, first of all, Baby Yoda is a lot more mobile than we mm-hmm. than we thought. Yep. 50 years on this planet, <laughs> it can ambulate. It can go places and it can it can climb down. Certainly is nimble enough to climb down from the floating cradle mm-hmm. and then to wander over or propel itself out in some way using the force perhaps. We don't I, know. I think force everything with this little BB. Now we don't know what babies prior 50 years have been like, have no idea. Presumably, despite all the bounty hunters on its little tail, the child hasn't spent too many nights by the fireside as a bounty hunter attempts to stitch its own flesh back together. And yet, it has that pure instinct of Mm -hmm. just wanting to help, of wanting to aid the Mando. Is there something special about him that Baby Yoda senses? Is this something that Baby Yoda was doing with the other? Right sentient creatures that were around it we don't know when baby yoda waddles over again just (laughs) and reaches out so sweetly clearly we can deduce based on what happens later in the episode with the mudhorn that yoda right here is readying to use the force to assist specifically to force heal think of advanced power very advanced rarely seen power think of obi-wan reviving luke in a new hope after the tuscan raider attack for example and Mando hand waves what he's seeing. Get out of here, kid. You bother me. <laughs> Lofts the child <laughs> back in the basket. Why? Well, for one, of course, Mando doesn't yet know what the child is capable of doing. We should acknowledge that, obviously. There's not necessarily any logical reason based on context clues to that point for Mando to deduce that the child would be able to heal wounds. Right. That, there's no reason that Mando should think that. But... There is reason for Mando to deduce that the child is special, that the child is gifted and precious in some way. Why else all the fuss and the bounties and the secrecy? For Baby Yoda, meanwhile, is this ability newly discovered in this moment? Right. This is a fascinating question. These are, yeah, all intriguing questions. Is the desire to use the Force in this way totally intuitive? We know that this species from at least Legends canon is said to have an extremely strong... All five, the force. all five members of the species that we know, Yoda and Yaddle from primary canon and then three others in Legends canon, all of them extraordinarily it, powerful Jedi. But we also know that Luke, a very gifted force user, needed someone to say to him, hey, yeah. this is what this is and this is how it works. Anakin, Padre scene is a good example. We learn from Qui-Gon that part of why Anakin is so gifted and so right. successful is because he is using the force without realizing it. He is using it. Those are all subconscious, kind of like instinctive, reflective uh, Like wizards uses and of Harry Potter right. are using magic before they find out like about pre-wand Hogwarts. pre-wand magic. Sometimes yeah. it just pops out of you. But Yoda this seems is to be acting, maybe yeah. Yoda seems to be acting with intention. Yeah, this is very, very, very different. So it raises the question, has baby Yoda been trained somehow? Right. Are the child's own skills and gifts a mystery to itself, revealing themselves in moments of need, like... For instance, like Harry regrowing his hair in Private Drive. Yes. Do the Shrinking ch- the ugly sweater. Yeah. Do the child's abilities surface more out of a desire to help others or like because of some kind of swelling of emotion? Right. Consider, the child did not act in Chapter 1 when Mando and IG gunned down the door, nor when IG lifted the gun to its face to right. kill it. Right. It acted in Chapter 2 twice to come to Mando's aid. Yes. Not when 
the Trandoshan was running, running at the egg, or perhaps it didn't have enough time, but certainly there was no, uh, we have no reason to believe that it tried then. Perhaps a bond like this is new and is revealing yeah. something within baby Yoda. I love to think about that yeah. possibility. That's so cool. Mando's response to the child's second emergence from its basket and Claw first reached to help its <laughs> new comrade heal by the fireside is again to stick it back into its carrier and shut the lid, which Come is on, man. not very nice. Can it breathe? I am concerned. All right. I am alarmed and concerned. It's not just that Mando doesn't know what to make of how the child is behaving. It's that Mando, at least in this instance, despite, of course, the fact that he was so drawn to this child and that his instincts as a former foundling at the end of chapter one, where I have to protect this innocent little thing, he doesn't really seem here to want to let the child in, to want to interact in a meaningful way. It's interesting because beyond the fact that he seems quite hesitant to develop any kind of bond with the child, you'd at least think, seeing as he wants to deliver it alive, theoretically, because that would be the higher the higher return on his investment, he doesn't seem particularly interested in being like, okay, what do they eat? How right. often do I change it? Do right. I need to do anything to keep this right. thing alive? Are you okay? Yeah, you're fine. You're right, completely. And of course, it, even though we've only just met Mando and don't know a lot, we've we've seen enough glimmers of emotional motivation to at least assume that that's not the full truth of what's mm-hmm. in Mando's heart. Again, you know, his decision to protect Baby Yoda in the first place at the end of episode one speaks to that. Also, the way that we see him talking about the foundlings and how how full of joy he is that the best car he's able to bring back to the armorer will help fund the care for so many of them. There is heart in there, but reaching it where we're gleaning is probably going to require breaking through more than just armor. Case in point. When Mando and the child return to Mando's ship, Mando comes over the top of a hill to see that Jawas have arrived on the scene. Shocking moment. And they are well into the process of picking his ship clean. So what does Mando do? Run down and say, stop, hold on. Let's talk about it. There's been a misunderstanding. That's mine. That's my ship. We can, no. No, he does not. He loads his rifle, shoulders it, and just starts evaporating Jawas in horrifying fashion. It's really awful. Again, we get, whenever the violence pops off in this episode, we we see it at some point through Baby Yoda's eyes, and we get that shot of Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda looks like, troubled by what it is seeing. Whoa! Baby Yoda survived Mando and IG's attack on the compound, as we know, and as we know from Quill, that other bounty hunters certainly had perhaps gotten as far as the compound and failed and were killed. That means it's reasonable to assume that this child has been surrounded by violence, perhaps for many, many years. Maybe its entire life. Perhaps for most of its life, yeah. And yet, it looks really concerned and sincerely surprised at Mando's explosion of cold-blooded lethal force. There's a little bit of a... Obi-Wan looking at the security holograms and seeing Anakin slaughtering younglings, like just not knowing maybe what people are fully capable of or not wanting to believe in. We can't tell how much of it is just from a lack of exposure to something similar and how much of it is like a sense, a sense that Baby Yoda has about who Mando really is. And then when events are unfolding in a way that doesn't align with that. It's a great point because when you, you know, extrapolate what Mando's end goal was. Right. It was, I guess, 
kill all the Jawas and get my stuff back? Like, that's All it. of them. Wipe them out. Wipe them out. If Baby Yoda is a Yoda or Yaddle clone yes. or a member of the species that produce, as far as we know, Jedi and every member or Yoda or Yaddle's offspring, then it will likely share something in common with Yoda, which is a desire for peace and protection. A fondness but, for meditating? Yes. Well, hopefully not until- Baby Yoda acts quickly, not, decisively, I, by the way. Again, more proof that Yoda was washed. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Lost a step or a hundred. Yes. <laughs> but a recognition that sometimes violence is the pathway to peace. The Jedi way, in other words. The child through its 50 years is so young, so unexposed to the ways of the world, at least as far as we know. Starting to make its way through the world by a bounty hunter side will lend a specific type of perspective. Not the sand crawler, meanwhile. Mando gets, again, his ass absolutely handed to him. And he basically, his strategy here is to just continue to move himself closer to the weapons that are trying to kill him. <laughs> yeah, like, That's his entire approach. And, you know, we, ha we have made so many from before the show even launched. And now in episode one and episode two, so many comps to our most obvious points of reference, Boba and Django. But yeah. well, you realize in this moment that Mando is operating with some secondhand materials. Yes. No jetpack. No missile launcher. He doesn't have all of the bells and whistles that we associate with those other Mandalorian bounty hunters. So when he finally takes that blast that is so forceful, it fries his armor, sends him careening down to the mud, he is instantly knocked unconscious. And again, the thing to actually think about here is not just that he lost this fight. Right. Okay, it happens. It's, is he thinking things through? Didn't put any sort of monitor on the ship, as we've said. Well, here, what is with him? The most precious thing maybe in the galaxy. And he has doesn't pause for a moment to think about what running into that fight will mean for Baby Yoda, should he fall. So Baby Yoda's just kicking it unprotected the whole time Mando's out cold. Anyone Anybody. could have come. What if another bounty hunter with a fob had been tracking them at that point? Could have been a disaster. Very tough look for our guy Mando. Who is frankly lucky to be alive. Return we will after word from sponsors. Binge about Star Wars. It's presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender when you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of our 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. Find one today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by Star Wars, Jedi Fallen Order, the new action-adventure game from Respawn Entertainment. Available now! Jedi Fallen Order is the Star Wars game that you've been waiting for. Taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars A New Hope, you can play as Cal Kestis, a Jedi Padawan turned fugitive. After nearly escaping Order 66 and the Jedi Purge, you're on a quest to rebuild the Jedi Order. Build a lightsaber, hone iconic force powers, and complete your training to become a powerful Jedi, all while staying one step ahead of the Empire. I got my lightsaber tricked out. I've got the green blade. I changed up the handle, changed up the pommel a little bit to get it just how I like it. And now I'm slicing through stormtroopers and blurgs. With ease. Boy, guess you don't need them to hop about the terrain. My experience so far is that I just want to sit down, <laughs> the game, 
find my inner Cal, and my husband keeps trying to play the game without me. How dare he? Which is rude. Become a Jedi in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Available now on Xbox One, PS4, and PC. Rated T for Team. And now back to binge mode. After waking Mando with child in tow, return to the Razor Crest to assess the damage, and it is an absolute disaster. Terrible. It is stripped nearly bare. It is bleak. Most of the features we highlighted last pod ruined, and we can see the effect that this has on Mando. This ship is his life and his livelihood. Yes. And not only because he's stranded now, he, unlike the Mithral, apparently can't hail a cruiser because, you know, whatever. Does he but not have, like, I think he, just, he must the, the he, Blade app on his phone? He must deposit all his credits, like, socially with the tribe. Mm-hmm. But because that ship re- that represents... Flan. <laughs> the Flan, baby. But that ship clearly represents his livelihood and his identity. Yes. The Mando that we've seen so far, at least, is mostly on his own, coming alive in a new way in the armory, but largely moving from place to place chasing down paydays that allow him to fulfill his purpose to get more Beskar. Flight, as we've discussed before, represents control, agency, the ability to determine where you'll be without consideration for what others want or need. Being without that is clearly unfamiliar with him, and it fills him with anxiety and with dread. To the point where he recognizes that he needs help. And it's not a sensation that he's fond of. It's very apparent. Where does he go? Well, the only place he can really, back to Quill. As Baby Yoda chases around that frog that he'll eventually <laughs> ingest, Quill says, this is what was causing all the fuss? And Mando replies, I think it's a child. And it's a small moment, but it's a notable one because, again, he doesn't know for sure. He just knows that he got an age to go on, 50 years, and that that age doesn't quite seem to align with what is right there in front of his eyes. And despite IG's comments to him in episode one about species aging differently, he knows he didn't have a full chain code or really any other information to go on. Star Wars fans have spent decades asking George Lucas for details on Yoda's species, and they are not the only ones light on details clearly Clearly, again, this is a Mando is not someone who just sits at home. Right, he he explores He's, the galaxy, right. and clearly, he has never come across this species and doesn't know what to make of it. Mando tells Quill about the Jawas and his Razor Crest, and he is despondent. But Quill tries to calm him. He says, "Listen, your ship is potentially okay. It hasn't been destroyed. The parts have just been stolen." Mm-hmm. Mando says, stolen or destroyed makes no difference to me, which is a fascinating window into his thinking. It appears, at least at first blush, that the Mando, much like our friend Anakin, (laughs) at the end of Revenge of the Sith, is dealing with absolutes. Anyway, from Mando's perspective, he has what he needs or he doesn't. That's it. There's like no gray in between. As we saw in chapter one, when Quill had to convince him to try to learn the Blurg, Patience doesn't seem to be his strong suit. From the Mando's perspective, either he has the tools to accomplish the mission Mm -hmm. or he does not. Right. That speaks to disliking finding himself out of his comfort zone in circumstances and places around people who push him to embrace strange ways of living, strange cultural mores. Right. But that's Star Wars. Yes. So there's a lot (laughs) of strange. Mando's ability to adapt feels essential, not only just to, like, accomplishing this mission, but, like, being a sentient living being in this galaxy. 
Right. Like, you can't just shoot everything. Right. Lucky for him, the child and Quill both seem predisposed to embrace the uncommon in a way that he does not. And also quite inclined to help him learn flexibility in his own life. Patience. Yes. They could be Jedi masters. Mando calls the Sandcrawler a, quote, crawling fortress. And again, it's unclear if that's some sort of, you know, shorthand or affectation or if he's actually not familiar with the real term. But he he clearly knows enough about Jawas to speak a little bit of their language and to doubt Quill's proclamation that they can arrange a trade. I have spoken, Quill says. That's that. Maybe Yoda just noshing on a frog in the background. So cute. <gasps> hey, put that down. Hey, you stop that. And again, seeing Baby Yoda, it's so cute. But if we actually think about the substance from a storytelling perspective, Baby Yoda is capable of finding food. Baby Yoda is capable of getting in and out of restraints, in essence. Baby Yoda is capable of moving around. More self-sufficient. It's a five-tool baby. <laughs> Off the charts. Uh, the, the, the 80 scale scouting chart, it won't do. What's the midichlorian count? That's what I want to know. Oh, it's got to be ridiculous. Let's ask Megalian. She's got the blood but work, again, I guarantee it. Again, straight midichlorian count does not always respond to force power. It's true. It's true. The other part of the frog eating thing that's notable, though, is Mando's response because he says, hey, spit that out. Yeah. And it's like real overt dad vibes, which is very sweet and charming and makes us wonder again about what his exposure to that kind of role is like. Is he involved in the lives of those foundlings? Does he have maybe children of his own? We have so much more to learn. The negotiation with the Jawas goes poorly at first, <laughs> as one would expect. And it's very, very clear that Mando and probably Mandalorians writ large just are not used to, one, disarming and two, negotiating, right. do, you know, trading. They're just not good with it. He bargains with his gun, not his mouth and mind. They don't like you for some reason, <laughs> Quill says. Well, I did disintegrate a few of them. Completely unrepentant about what he did, but also clearly the product of what's comfortable of his own culture. When Quill tells him to drop his weapons, Mando says, I'm a Mandalorian. Weapons are part of my religion. These are more than just tools for him. They're a source of identity and purpose and belonging. Without them, he's literally not who he purports right. to be. A tether to the core of his life, to his culture, orienting items in an often alien world. And what's just as important, more important than the weapons? The Beskar. And yeah. that's what the Jawas want. Of course they want. I mean, you got to start high. That's you gotta. negotiating 101. An unthinkable price for Mando to, to pay. And he attempts to speak their language. And when he does, they are laughing at him. They're mocking him. They say he's like a Wookiee. Worse. <laughs> and then he responds to being derided to some sort of belittling behavior by shooting fire at them from a flamethrower. It's crazy. From like four feet away, too. What are we doing? His instinct is just to harm and murder. And they're a real, like, preschooler who hasn't been taught how to yes. behave and interact with someone who wants to share the toys. You know, we can see that there is clearly much more than a, just a language barrier at play here. He understands what they're saying. The egg, the egg, he asks, but is completely uncomfortable acting in this fashion. This fashion being some sort of diplomatic solution, yes. some sort it, of conversation and real exchange. He's used to providing a service for straight payment. He is not used to 
doing something for someone else that he feels like he should not have to, that he feels is below him. Yeah. Well, then, you know, when Anakin's like, well, then they should be made to understand. There's a real vibe of that here. Yes. It's like, you stole my stuff. Yes, but you landed on our planet. Yeah. So the egg is the price. And it's into the sand crawler and off to find the egg. (sighs) Baby Yoda in it. So cute. (gasps) Perched right next to Mando on the control deck so of the fresh. sand crawler. So precious. It's unbelievable. <laughs> so precious. Mando brings baby Yoda with him on the quest, learning at least one lesson from the Razor Crest debacle. If you got something precious, don't let it out of your sight. Right. He has absolutely no idea what awaits him in the Mudhorn Cave, walking into the literal and metaphorical dark, searching for his prize, but in the process, waking the beast, which absolutely ragdolls him from the cave. (laughs) And the action sequence which follows is thrilling to watch and also distressing in the sense that that Mando is clearly and instantly way above his head. I was distressed for the Mudhorn. Poor thing. All I was doing was trying to take a nap. It's unfortunate. Awful. But its egg is delicious. (laughs) Uh, So Mando's in a lot of trouble right from Trump. His armor is in absolute disarray, hanging from his chest. He has at one point to use his little remote control to scoot Mm -hmm. the child out of the path of the raging beast. Meanwhile, he's shooting flames at the mud horn and shooting his grappling hook into the side of its head. Awful. His armor is falling off of him. And the final time he's hurled feet into the air, lands flat on his back, is clearly concussed. He stands up with only a blade in his hand to meet the charge of this creature that is clearly about to pancake him. And the beast charges. And then Ludwig Goranson's score surges. Everything changes about the sound and tenor of the scene. This mystical possibility just injected right into it. Instead of the Mudhorn reaching Mando, it lifts into the air, trapped by something unseen. The Force. We know that this is what's happening the second that we see the child lift its hand. Baby Yoda is a Force user, channeling every ounce of strength to halt the Mudhorn's progress and save Mando's life. Until the effort is so great that the child collapses in its basket. And the parallel to first seeing Yoda lift the X-Wing in front of the disbelieving Luke in the swamps of Dagobah is almost too powerful to ignore. An observer who doesn't think something's possible wouldn't even think to wonder, awed by what is on display. And Tess, this makes perfect sense. Yes. Listen, clearly the child became the asset for a reason, as we speculated about at length in in our chapter one pod. Force sensitivity was atop the list of likely reasons why, whether a clone, an offspring of Yoda and Yaddle, or another member of the species, the likelihood of being a force user was all but a lock. All but a lock. All five known members of this species introduced in canon or Legends canon were extremely powerful Jedi. And as we theorized last time, and are more sure of now than before the client and Dr. Pershing likely want to recover their property or steal someone else's to use the Force-sensitive creature as a weapon and tool of their new order or to eliminate it as a threat. Now, we should talk about a theory that popped up 
on Reddit was the first place yes. I saw it. And we'll just issue a quick sub-sub spoiler warning here. There's no actual confirmation of this, but if you don't want to hear something that's being speculated about on the internet, fast forward 30 seconds. So one of the PR photos yes. for Dr. Pershing. Right, so it's out there. It's out there. One of the PR photos for Dr. Pershing has him wearing a, a, a white kind of a work uniform, and on the arm of the uniform is a patch, and the symbol is quite similar to a symbol that you would associate with the Camino Caminoans yes. and the cologne industry on Camino. Yes. It doesn't appear in the episode yet. Yet. Right. So it's not an episode one, but it, it but it's there in the photo. It's out there. So that would seem to suggest that this is a clone, a clone. Yes. Crucially, there are not clearly not many force users active at this period. There's Luke, of course, as we know. Leia is also a Force-sensitive. Add Baby Yoda to the list. Beyond that, Ahsoka, the very complicated Ezra Bridger. Yes. Palpy, we have to say, at least given that he appears to be back in some way, always alive, clone as in his Legends canon, who knows? Who else? Ben Solo, a.k.a. Kylo Ren, had been born, but had Luke begun training pupils at this point? We we really don't don't know, but clearly... The force was almost forgotten at this point. Small set of candidates. Mando, though, unlike us, yes. has absolutely no idea what he's seeing. It is completely and utterly this is interesting. foreign to him. And this might seem strange or counterintuitive because the Jedi religion, the Jedi order are remarkably important components of life in the galaxy. But. This is something of a pattern now. You know, think of how many times we've met characters who think that all of this mm-hmm. is a myth, a legend. Han, when he's introduced to us in A New Hope, saying that's all bullshit, basically. Ray in The Force Awakens, asking with such longing in her voice if everything about the Jedi is really true. Think even of how the masses, and not even just the masses, but his dearest, closest friend, Baze, mock Chirrut in Rogue One for his irrepressible belief in the power of the Force. Not everybody believes the Force is real. Not everybody's seen it. So when Quill asks Mando to explain what happened and he says, was it injured? And Mando says, I don't think so. Not physically. Quill replies, explain it to me again. I still don't understand what happened. And Mando says, neither do I. Now, First of all, the fact that Mando shared this with Quill in the first mm-hmm. place is notable because this would be precious information, tightly guarded information, and he chose to share it. Quill has earned his trust. But crucially, the fact that he shared it doesn't get them any further because neither of them seems to recognize what the child did as being a display of force power. It's not even that they haven't yeah. seen it. It's that they're not able to connect the dots and say, oh, that's what that must be. It's pretty miraculous to think about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a theme in Star Wars that history is easily forgotten and news, you know, you forget about how vast the galaxy is. News doesn't really seem to spread in the way you would expect. That said, you know, Mandalorians have a long history of fighting Jedi. So it is really. It's shocking. It's shocking that he doesn't know what he saw. That's a great point. Before that, when Mando first saw Quill by the Sandcrawler, he said, I'm surprised you waited. (laughs) He is not used to people doing things that are uh, not directly beneficial to their interests, the doing things for others that seem, you know, like something that we would call compassion. Mm -hmm. It means something to him as a foundling and as someone now living largely on his own. When he says that there's no way, even with the parts now back in his position to fix his ship, Quill is like, shut up. (laughs) There is much work to do, Quill says, but he's more than willing. They appear to get through what Mando labeled as days. This will take days, even with a full crew. They get through days of work in 
hours in just one night, and the Razorcrest engines roared to life. I can't thank you enough, Mando says. Please allow me to give you a portion of the reward. And Quill says he can't accept. You are my guest, and I am therefore in your service. He is an uncommonly kind person, and he's also motivated by the desire to get all of this drama away from him so that he can live the life of peace that he craves. But that operates in concert with a real sincere willingness to help strangers do strange things. He has a sense of what's right, a sense that's clearly informed by his own history and his people's history, and more on that in a bit. And Mando's reply to him here is kind of a shocker. He says, I could use a crew member of your ability, and I can pay handsomely. I'm honored, Quill replies, but I have worked a lifetime to finally be free of servitude. So Quill just wants the familiar now, even if he's quite adept at contending with... He's retiring here in the outer room. Absolutely. Disruptions to that along the way. Mando, as we can see from his reflexive allergy to the help that the child and Quill both initially offer, is not used to being a part of the team. He's not accustomed to working to understand and learn from some sort of culture clash that he finds himself in, rather than just blasting his way through it. That's his typical method. And operating inside of a group means embracing shared values. It means accepting other points of view. And though Mando, again, seems able to hang with a new pairing if there's a utilitarian purpose at play, like working with IG-11 last episode, we can sense that what he's offering Quill here is something different, something more, something largely unfamiliar to him right now. Real partnership and maybe even friendship. It is sad for us and Mando and Nick Nolte's checking account that Quill says no. <laughs> Though it's heartening from Quill's perspective. He knows what he wants and needs. He has the hard-won clarity that so many of us, including presumably Mando, still seek. You get the sense from that one line and from Nick Nolte's really wonderful delivery of it that Quill has been through some things and he has experienced a lot and he's come by that clarity. Hard one. Hard one, yeah. I understand, Mando says. Then all I can offer is my thanks. Thank you, Quill says, for bringing peace to my valley and good luck with the child. May it survive and bring you a handsome reward. I have spoken. May it be a masculine child. May it be a (laughs) masculine. And may your child be a masculine Yoda. We have a slight edit, by the way. May it survive and remain by Mando's side. Protect Protect baby Yoda Yoda at all costs. We have spoken. (laughs) Don't you dare harm this child. Don't you fucking dare. God. Don't you dare. (laughs) Mando flies off. The child nestled cutely in its little crib. Who knows where they're headed? Mm, Mystery. Back to the client, perhaps? But as Mando looks down at the child, the music changes. He shakes the crib once, twice, a third time. Listen. Let baby Yoda rest. Let it rest. It's mysterious, but also exciting, and it's hopeful, and then Baby Yoda wakes. And so, too, has the Force. So, too, has the infinite possibilities of the galaxy. On to Chapter 3. But first, Jedi Temple. Jason, I'm surprised you waited. I'm surprised you took so long. I have a lot to do. Well, I'm here now, just like some other surprising folks. So please gather the Padawan learners. Head to the Jedi Temple. Teach us everything we need to know about the shocking chapter two cameo bringers, the Sandcrawler riding scavengers, the Jawas. Jawas are native to Tatooine, and like their fellow Tatooinians, the Tusken Raiders are generally 
looked down upon by other sentient species on world as nuisances at best and barbaric primitives to be slaughtered without mercy. Looking at you, Mando, at worst. The deserts of Tatooine are full of treasure if you are a Jawa, crashed spacecraft, droids who wandered too far from their homes or bases of operation, damaged or abandoned equipment. Even their mobile fortress homes, the sand crawlers, are scavenged. According to the book Star Wars, absolutely everything you need to know, Tatooine was once a boom planet when the boom went bust about 4,000 years ago, according to Legends canon. And this was due to poor quality of minerals and ores and the unforgiving environment and the Tusken Raiders. The mining interests who had arrived on Tatooine pulled out, leaving their heavy equipment like sand crawlers behind. So these are ancient vehicles, some of the oldest in Star Wars lore. What exactly the Jawas did before this can barely be imagined as they took to these like hermit crabs take to shells. That said, the sand crawler we see in this episode certainly appears to be smaller than those we saw on Tatooine in New Hope and Attack of the Clones and from Legends-era diagrams. Legends-era crawlers came in at 20 meters tall or about 65 feet high and change in 36.8 meters or 120 feet long. Even the control bridge of the vehicle seemed built for Jawa-sized pilots. Now, perhaps the Jawas are, of Arvala 7 found more compact versions of the vehicles on planet or customized one to their liking. They, of course, have had thousands of years to pimp these RV rides. Jawas are typically armed with short-range ion blasters. These, as you would expect, are made from scavenged materials. Ionized particles are effective at disrupting energy fields and circuitry, causing machinery to overload and shut down. As we saw in Empire Strikes Back and later in Rogue One, a powerful enough ion blast, either from an ion cannon or an ion torpedo cannon, capacitate an Imperial Star Destroyer. Ion weapons, fortunately enough for Mando, cause little structural damage compared to the lasers fired by blasters, making it the perfect weapon for using on droids, which you intend to later refurbish and sell. If Jawas carried blasters, which they certainly could if they wanted to, Mando would have a giant, gaping, smoking hole in his chest, and the Jawas would be melting his Beskar helmet down as we speak. The fact that Jawas carry non-lethals makes Mando's absolutely unhinged yes. response to them yes. feel like a wild and unjustified overreaction. Reprehensible. And when it comes to Jawas, of course, buyer beware. Unsurprisingly, Jawa goods are notoriously unreliable. But listen, if you're a settler living on the edge of the edge of the outer rim, clinging to life out here, Jawas are simply what your best bet is for acquiring goods, for acquiring droids, which would otherwise be unavailable to you. We'll discuss A New Hope in detail soon, but Jawas capturing C-3PO and R2-D2 after the two crash landed on Tatooine, which led to their mm -hmm. purchase by Owen Lars, is a pivot point in our story that yes. seems so fortunate in retrospect that it's hard to rule out the hand of fate or destiny. We know very little about Jawa culture. Legends canon told us that they lived in tribal communities, each led by a male clan chief who captained the sand crawlers and female shamans who lead the tribe as a whole. Sand crawler crews were selected from within the tribe and the remaining members, including the shaman and the children, would stay behind in strongholds deep in the desert. The crawlers would wander for a year, and at a certain time they would return, and the disparate tribes would gather in huge numbers to trade goods and information. Jawa anatomy, beyond the two bright eyes shining behind those uh, black hoods and the short stature, roughly the size of a grade schooler, is mysterious as well. 
There are suggestions that Jawas are a rodent-like species, and this was the case in Legends. Certainly, Jawas must have a very advanced sense of scent because their language, Jawaese, uses scent markers as part of its expression, making it absolutely impenetrable to other species. A simplified language called trade talk is how the Jawas barter, and that's the language we hear in this episode in A New Hope. Chapter 2, The Child, this episode, provides no clarity on the appearance of Jawas as uh, the bodies of those shot by Mando were completely destroyed. (laughs) Terrible. Awful. Awful. How Jawas migrated from Tatooine to Arvella 7 is, as our colleague Ben Lindbergh wrote about at TheRinger.com, a great website, a fascinating question. Legends canon also suggested that Jawas had moved to other planets in the Outer Rim. Now, while they are clearly adept at stripping things down, Mm -hmm. we have very little indication that they are capable of building things. Certainly something as complicated as spacecraft. Nor did it seem that in our small sample size of canonical Jawa content that they would have had any interest in doing so. Perhaps they bought or otherwise bargained their way onto a bulk cruiser, which then raises the question of how they chose Arvala 7, if they found the sand crawler on World, or if they brought it with them. Crackpot theory alert, folks. This being the Outer Rim, perhaps the huts were involved. Mm. Nomadic traders see a lot of things. They meet a lot of people. Jawas, as we have seen time and time again, are often first on scene of a crashed ship. They would know a lot about people arriving on particular planets, and no one would be particularly surprised upon finding these little scavengers poking around where they perhaps shouldn't be. You could see how they would be perfect little spies, the Star Wars version of Varys' little birds, perhaps. I'm into it. How do they feel about candied plums? Well, we know how they feel about eggs. <gasps> Mel? Yeah. Thank you for bringing nuggets to my valley. <laughs> You're welcome. Now that you have, let's roll like BB-8 through eight of your favorite insights and observations from this episode, Lightning Round Style. You go first. Number one, Ugnaughts. It was another great episode for our dude, Nick Nolte, a.k.a. Quill, who, as we discussed at length already today, proved indispensable to Mando. But mixed in with that wisdom and the pep talks and the street smarts yes. came some tragic insight into his history and the history of his people. When Mando offered him a spot on his crew, Quill said, I'm honored, but I've worked a lifetime to finally be free of servitude before thanking Mando for bringing peace to my valley. And in chapter one, Quill also spoke often of craving peace and how the quest for it led him to this planet, how he was helping Mando because he wanted to stop everybody else who was disrupting it. Quill is an Ugnaught, a species that hails from Gentis in the Outer Rim and is known across the galaxy for its extraordinary work ethic. And we've seen Ugnaughts before in primary canon on Bespin's Cloud City and Empire Strikes Back. We've also seen them in Clone Wars, Rebels, Resistance television shows, etc., plus novelizations and more. Much of the additional exposure that we've gotten to Ugnaughts in both primary canon and Legends canon clarified the heartache that Quill hints at here. Throughout the galaxy, those looking to exploit the Ugnaughts' tireless approach would raid their homes and enslave them. General Grievous was one of the many who did so, and even the tribes that had found their freedom and constructed their own community on Cloud City were eventually enslaved after Imperial rule set in on Bespin. Ugnats have an average lifespan of 200 years, and their children are preciously called Uglets. Adorable. But we don't yet know how far into his 200-ish years Quill is, or what exactly his specific Mm -hmm. personal history is. But we can say with certainty that after the horrors inflicted on him and his people, 
He deserves nothing but the tranquility that he seeks away from the mercenaries, away from the galactic drama. We have spoken. Number two, Mudhorns. Yes. Pour one out for the Mudhorns, folks, who didn't deserve anything that happened to it in this episode. The beast, which resembles a hairy rhino, had never appeared in a Star Wars story before this episode, though it somewhat calls to mind another Star Wars creature we've seen. The three-horned reek from the Petronaki arena in Attack of the Clones. When Mando killed it, the Mudhorn dwelled in the cave where it protected its hairy egg, a large yolk-filled orb covered with the same kind of wool that covers the the creature. The fact that the Jawas were willing to trade this egg, which amounted to a snack for Mm -hmm. them to share, albeit clearly a delicacy, for all the Razorcrest ship parts they'd plunder indicates that such eggs are highly rare. Yes. And no matter how numerous they are, we can see that they'd be damn near impossible to get for anyone lacking the necessary skill or a Force-sensitive little baby. <laughs> is the other Mudhorn parent out there roaming Orvala 7, working to make its way back to the family that's no longer there? Disintegrate our hearts, why don't you, John Favreau? Ah, speaking of disintegration. When Mando and Quill approach the Sandcrawler to bargain for the Razor parts, the Jawas go berserk as soon as they see Mando. And when Quill is like, man, they really hate you, Mando says, well, I did disintegrate a few of them. Now, Star Wars fans across the galaxy surely felt a tingle of recognition in that moment because in Empire Strikes Back during the infamous Bounty Hunter Millennium Falcon assignment scene, Darth Vader issues the following instruction to the assembled. You are free to use any methods necessary, but I want them alive. No disintegrations. And as he says no disintegrations, he points directly at Boba Fett, who, understanding that this order is issued for him specifically, replies to it saying, as you wish. So apparently disintegration is something of a Mandalorian bounty hunter hallmark. In 2017, Screen Rant noted that in the then newly published book, Star Wars from a Certain Point of View, a Boba Fett story set during the events of A New Hope revealed the history behind that moment in Empire, which hinged on Vader basically being pissed off at Boba for using disintegration tactics on a bounty that he was pursuing. Quote, idiots came at me with ion disruptors. What? They thought I wouldn't carry a weapon accelerator? Flash, boom, three tiny ash piles tried to collect. And Lord, no disintegrations refused to pay without bodies. Imagine calling Darth Vader Lord, no disintegrations. My word's not good enough, apparently. So elsewhere in Legends canon, we learn about disintegration chambers, these truly vile devices that the Empire used for mass executions and population control. And in both primary and Legends canons, we learn about disruptors, which are banned energy weapons that could disable vessels or disintegrate a single organic target. So given the associations here, it is really troubling to see Mando, a guy that we are theoretically supposed to be rooting for, disintegrating his foes without thought. Number four, Vibroblades. Yes. From one alarming weapon to another, Mando only managed to beat the Mudhorn because of Baby Yoda's force assist, but even still. How did he manage to kill this huge creature with one thrust of a only moderately sized knife? We believe the knife in question is a vibroblade. The blades, which buzz and glow hot, are extremely powerful due to the rapid ultrasonic pulses that make them strong enough to cut through an animal's hide or a trooper's armor, or even, if outfitted with a cortosis weave, stop a lightsaber. Given the size and strength of the Mudhorn, even after Baby Yoda force halted it, it stands to reason that Mando's knife must be this special variety in order to work so quickly. Yes. But there's one more reason to think so. Both Django and Boba Fett kept vibroblades in the gauntlets of their armor, and so far Mando's toolkit has a lot in common with his canonical Mandalorian bounty hunter. 
colleagues, though we've yet to see the jetpack or missile launcher. Though clone assassins and BX series droid commandos use vibro blades and vibro swords, respectively, vibro weapons in general are extremely dangerous and thus banned in many populous locations across the galaxy. Part of their utility came from being able to penetrate energy shields. One of the more notable vibro blades in Legends canon is the one that Mara Jade gave to her son with not actually a space virgin <laughs> Luke Skywalker, which contained a tracking beacon so that Mara Jade could locate her son. Guess she didn't have a tracking fob like seemingly everyone on The Mandalorian. <laughs> it's got to be a vibro blade. The way yeah, that it's it quivering to. when he yeah. holds it out. Uh, speaking of those tracking fobs, number five, Trandoshans. Some of the beings bringing Discard to Quill's new home are familiar to Star Wars fans, Trandoshans. Three of them pounced from the cliffs to attack Mando at the beginning of the episode, and as we saw, they were carrying a tracking fob, meaning that they had been assigned a bounty for the asset just as Mando and IG-11 had, which is concerning. Their ability to find the child with such precision indicates how powerful these tracking fobs appear to be once in close range, but Trandoshans who hail from Trandosha don't really need tech. They are fabled hunters, so renowned in part because they undergo a rite of passage as they grow. And one of those rites of passage has become an infamous part of Star Wars lore centered on killing our girl, Ahsoka Tano. Thankfully, that hunt failed. But many of the other Crush rites- Crush me with your head tail. <laughs> She's the best. <laughs> but many of the other rites and hunts have succeeded, including those led by the legendary Trandoshan bounty hunter, Bosk, who provided our introduction to the species in Empire Strikes Back as part of the aforementioned bounty hunting crew, taking the Falcon assignment from Vader, and who served as mentor and bodyguard to none other than Boba Fett before they became professional rivals. Bosk crossed paths with many others in our story, including Mace Windu, whom he failed to beat, and Asajj Ventress, whom he worked for as a hired blade, and crucially, in this moment in time in which, as outlined, the number of Force-sensitive beings in the galaxy is a central matter, he once worked with yeah. Ezra Bridger, a Force user who is a crucial figure in Star Wars Rebels. While none of the Trandoshans we've seen so far in The Mandalorian appear to be Bosk, Bosk has not been confirmed dead anywhere in primary canon or Legends canon. So this leaves open the possibility that he could enter this story. Mm. Regardless. His people seem likely to return as adversaries for Mando time and again. Number six, Arvala 7. Those run-ins might not happen on Arvala 7 now that the Razor Crest has sailed away, but at least we finally have a name for where we have been, a name spotted in Quill's write-up on the Star Wars databank. The planet on which Mando hunted for the asset has a lot in common with Tatooine, but one of the key signs that we were elsewhere came from the number of suns in the sky. There's not a binary sunset. We're not on Tatooine. All we know is what we've seen with our own eyes and what we've gleaned from Quill, which amounts to this. Arvella 7 is well off the beaten path, which is why Quill and its other inhabitants chose it. They wanted a life away from the complications prevalent elsewhere in the galaxy. The desert terrain is difficult to traverse without the aid of a big, beautiful blurg. And no matter what you're riding, you better be on the lookout for mudhorns and jawas, one nestled and lying in wait, and the other prepared to pilfer your goods the moment you look away. Small reptilian creatures dot the landscape, and at least one compound housed Nikto mercenaries guarding the child. Though it's unclear whether those Nikto guards were already on the planet or sent there by another party, perhaps, as we have noted in our last episode, the Huts, for whom Niktos have worked in the past. It's not supports your hut theory for it all does. of us. It's not inconceivable that the Jawas could also have been transported by the Huts or another crime syndicate for what ends we can't yet say. We can deduce that if the Jawas are roaming around in their sand crawler, there must be enough activity that make their habitation fruitful. The sand crawler did not fill itself. Did not. 
and there's not enough water to fill it. And that brings us to number seven, moisture farming. We know of at least one profession on this planet, Arbala 7, moisture farming, vapor farming. One more commonality between this planet and Tatooine. But what exactly does the occupation that Quill and the Lars family share entail? Well, on desert planets such as Arvala 7 and Tatooine, it's necessary to harvest vapor from the air in order to yield water, turning the humidity in the air into the life-sustaining liquid. Not everyone has access to that fresh-from-the-teat blue milk like Luke (laughs) on Octo. And so infrastructure exists to ensure a steady flow of nutrients. As we know from Owen Lars's decision to purchase two droids at the start of A New Hope, droids are handy on a moisture farm either to assist with the labor or to communicate with the vaporators, as in C-3PO's case. The Great Trote Salt Flat of Tatooine was a robust moisture farm zone with vaporators dotting the landscape, pulling moisture from the air. And some of the water that moisture farms yielded went to drinking, of course, and others went to fueling crop growth down in those dips beneath the surface where the flora could flourish despite the sweltering environment. And given how precious water could be, crime lords took advantage of fluctuations in supply and demand, including, of course, Jabba the Hutt, who heavily taxed water during the great drought of 11 BBY. And hilariously, as we learn from the comic book Star Wars 7, from the journals of old Ben Kenobi, the last of his breed, rumors swirled that Jabba just wanted to collect all that water so he could cleanse himself. And old Ben Kenobi was like, I've met my dude. He does not bathe. Mm -hmm. That's not right. Definitely not true. Of course, Water is a precious resource in our galaxy as well. But a quick search for Star Wars Moisture Farm Real reveals that mimicking this bit of science fiction has become something Hello. of a passion for scientists. Number eight, R5-D4. Hell yeah. A couple weeks back in our droids character study, we awarded our Medal of Bravery to R5-D4 for heroically sacrificing himself so that R2 could go with Luke and thus find old Ben Kenobi and thus begin the entire Star Wars story. We noted that an R5 appearance in The Mandalorian seemed possible because Jon Favreau posted a picture of the heroic astromech on his Instagram. Well, when Mando and Quill go to treat with the Jawas, an R5 unit is visible behind the Jawas head. Our OG trilogy dude earned the nickname Red from Luke Skywalker because of the signature red stripes. And R5 in this episode looks to be steel and blue. Could R5-D4 have gotten a paint job? Could this be a fellow R5 unit? Much the way Fav's Instagram of IG-88 foretold the arrival of IG-11, a similar but ultimately different droid. It's too soon to say. We know that R5 managed to escape his Sandcrawler captivity and work his way into the Rebellion, where he served as a spy and found his purpose with Voren Nal. We know from Legends canon that Nal refurbished R5, so maybe this is him and that's why he looks a bit different. But whether this is our R5 or another unit, hopefully it'll be able to escape those Jawas without causing his own head plate to pop off. Protect R5. Jason, good luck with the child. May it survive and bring you a handsome reward, perhaps in the form of a medal. Every episode of our movie discussions, we're going to honor the character who rallied the troops, advanced the cause, and today the winner of our Medal of Bravery is, of course... Baby Yoda, this is easy. We cannot possibly overstate how cute the child is. It's unbelievable. Precious. The big, beautiful eyes. So darling. The ears that convey so much emotion they with do. their raising and lowering and the way they did. Is this where I say that sound? Baby Yoda reminds me of my cat Halo? Yes. The combination of the wide knowing eyes, the flicker of the ears. So cute. It's wonderful. 
The child showed a notably observant and inquisitive spirit in this episode, taking note of Mando's mood, Mando's needs, popping out of the basket, attempting to establish contact, and crucially, recognizing when Mando was in peril. And in that moment of need, the child used the force. We don't know if this was baby Yoda's first time tapping into the force or if this is now something that it's been doing for its 50 years alive. The child's power and courage were on full display, however. Mando's starting to understand why so many in the galaxy are after the child slash asset. So are we. Protect it. Protect I- baby Yoda. Protect it! precious. All right, friends, you are our guests, and we are therefore in your service, just like we keep telling Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder, continue to explore the galaxy, and that you'll join us again next time for our deep dive into Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Until then, remember, we're Mandalorians. Podcasts are part of our religion. (laughs) That was the source of all this trouble. Here's so. Have you changed its diaper? What? Its diaper. What? Its diaper. I heard you. I just don't want to do that.